0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, jam-packed episode for you this week. The big news, of course, Christian Coleman has been provisionally suspended for three whereabouts failures. We'll dive all the way into the details of that case. Team Ingebrigtsen beats Team Chariot at the Impossible Games, but was it unfair? Hint, yes it was. USATF says they won't allow athletes to earn the Olympic trials standard this summer, Rojo, we dive into his coaching tree, which is better than we imagined, and we've got an interview with the only US pro to sign a deal this summer so far, Nia Akins of Penn, who is turned pro with the Brooks Beasts out in Seattle. So much to talk about this week, but we have to start with Coleman, I think, guys.
1: John, well, before we get there, let's give a word shout out to the sponsor of this program, which is... No other none other than the let'srun.com summer training program, folks. We've expanded this. If you're an adult and you want to do it, we had a lot of adults asking, hey, will this be good for me? Absolutely. We've got about 12 weeks. We can build your mileage up, try to get you to run 10 to 15 more miles than you have ever before. Get you ready for a fall racing season. If there is one, it's a kick-ass program. We've been getting rave reviews. Maybe we'll read some of those later. Bolton can read them to you. People have been emailing in. But I'm going to read one from my good buddy, Running with the Buffaloes author, Chris Lear. Chris has spent a lot of time around great coaches. Mark Wetmore, of Colorado, he wrote a book about him. Ron Warhouse of Michigan. But who coached him to his half-marathon PR? None other than Let's Run's John Kellogg. Chris told me yesterday it was the only time in my life that I surprised myself and ran something I didn't think was possible. Maybe I'll try to call up Chris and get him to make an audio endorsement of the program, but go to let slash coaching, let's slash coaching to get more info or shoot us an email at summer at let's
2: Robert, am I supposed to read the emails like the one from the guy that said, Rojo did not ever expect to receive a response back from you. I'm feeling like I'm interacting with a celebrity. This is fantastic. I think that's why Robert wants to expand this to adults because Adults that might actually know who he is. Some high school kid, they're not going to know who Rojo is.
0: Guys, I mean, this is, this is incredible. I, we have the biggest running news of COVID, maybe, since the Olympics were postponed. And already we're trying to pat Robert on, the back, on his back and John Kellogg and toot our own horns. It's the lesser-run podcast. That's just what we do every week.
1: John, in case you didn't realize, we're basically in an economic depression. Ad revenues have tanked. I'm trying to raise money so I can pay your salary. So just please let me get some people to sign up here. And, folks, the last time we talked about Christian Coleman, it somehow ended up being a, talking about me. Christian Coleman's father, the world's fastest man in the world, went to the let's Run.com message boards in September and started a thread saying, Robert Johnson is an in, unprofessional, irresponsible, hack and idiot, and I have no problem telling him that to his face. So, John, let's talk about this case, because I wonder what Christian Coleman's father is going to say this time, because I don't know, John. Did you and I step into it? Last night when this news broke, we actually found ourselves defending Coleman. How did we do that? Did we make a big mistake? Tell people where we are.
2: Let's first get the facts out there, right? Because establish that and then we'll get down the road. of.
0: Well, I think the issue here, Weldon, is that not everyone agrees on the facts. The fact What we know for sure right now is Christian Ch- Coleman was assessed – with a whereabouts failure on December 9th, 2019. That would be his third whereabouts failure in 12 months, which triggers a ban. Two years can be reduced to one year if they, you know, you know, there's some arbitration or whatever. But right now, Christian Coleman is provisionally suspended. That is official. The AIU has announced it. Now the details about this test. Coleman says he put down his one hour window, which is the one hour an athlete needs to be available for testing every single day. 7.15 7.15 to 8.15 p.m. on that day. Now, here's where it gets a little unclear. The tester says that they showed up at 7.15. They were knocking on the door every 10 minutes That and that Coleman was not there. Coleman says he was out shopping during that day. It's unclear exactly when. It might have been during the window. But he also says he was back in time for at least some, perhaps all of that one hour window from 7 15 to 8 15 p.m. He additionally says that the report, the incident report written by the doping control officer, lists a location other than his house. So he's saying, Look, I showed up, I was back home by 8 15, which was when my window ended. I didn't see a DCO. How can he say he tried to test me? He wasn't there. So there's some confusion about that. The other complaint Coleman lodged was that. The DCO never tried to call him when he couldn't locate Coleman at his house. The DCO didn't call him, which he was saying, look, I I was away. I would have come immediately. What we've subsequently learned, that's not actually a requirement. And the doping control officer has admitted he was instructed by the AIU not to call Coleman. So those are sort of the things that we know and what we don't know at the moment.
1: There's a lot there, but... There's a one-hour window. You're supposed to be at a specific location to be available for drug testing. Everyone knew that Coleman already had two missed tests. If he misses a third, he's banned. This, to me, what are we debating? He says he was there. The doping control officer says they were there.
0: That's exactly what we're debating, Robert.
1: I know, but someone is lying. And what, how are we debating this? Why are we debating this? We, we went over this a few months ago. I'm so sick of this. Like, we have smartphones. This is... Needs, this reminds me very much of police. What are we trying to do now? For the last five years, we've been trying to reform the police. They've been required to wear body cams. They've tried to require required to inter- videotape their interactions with the, poli- with the public. And as a result, we've seen some horrific actions by them. The doping control officers have a lot of power. They can ruin someone's careers. They can ruin someone's lives. They have a lot of responsibility. They need to videotape all interactions when they try to to drug test someone. We should not be debating this. They should have an app on their phone. It shows the time of day. It shows the GPS. It shows where they are. It shows them knocking on the door, etc. In this case, they've admitted they did not try to call him. They weren't supposed to try to call him. I guess that's fine. I, f- I think at first I didn't like the fact they didn't try to call him because Coleman says they've always tried to call in the past. But the, the big issue here is to me is who's telling the truth.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think Robert... You nailed it. They're not going... Like, even if they didn't call him, they admit they didn't call him, that is not going to save them. I reached out to the AIU and they said to me very clearly that they don't need to call him. It's not a requirement if they can't find him and that the lack of any telephone call does not give the athlete a defense to the assertion of a missed test. So he's not going to get off for that.
1: The reason why I was upset about the phone call last night is I didn't realize this was in the one-hour window. So, folks, yes, you have to be at a certain spot for one hour, but they can test you any time during the day. So if you say, hey, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, you know, during the day, but I'm at home for one hour, they might try to test you at the track or something like that. During that time frame, they'd obviously have to call you to figure out where you are. But I guess in this case, for that specific one-hour window, they do not need to call you, and they did not. But it's just, uh, I don't know. We we kind of, for some reason, John, I we're willing to give Coleman a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. When we wrote this article last night, we want to see the facts coming out.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, he has something to say. He listed a very lengthy impassioned defense. I'm willing to listen to that, you know, because there are some things that need to be sorted out. I think one thing, my opinion, I think even if they're showing up within the window, they should be able to call you if they can't locate you. I think the goal here should be to make sure the test happens to make as all efforts possible, knocking on the door and calling someone. To locate them now, some athletes have pointed out, "No, look. First of all, if you weren't where you say you were during your one-hour window, that's on you. They should knock on your door. You should know that's when someone should show up." Two, they claim, and this is what the AAU says, that it will provide advance notice of a test. So, say you're out doing something, you know, ten minutes, ten minutes away you say oh i'll show up in half an hour it'll still be within my window you can still test me they say you could be up to something illicit it's advanced notice i don't know if i totally buy that i think if you've been doping and you find out you have to take a test in 30 minutes you're not going to really be able to clear your system at that point but that is the argument that some athletes have forwarded yeah mr
2: coleman if you're listening we kind of got your back a little bit this time there's two things. Robert said somebody's probably not telling the truth or the information. I, I don't know if, if that's the only scenario. Maybe they're framing things differently. But I, we don't want anyone to get popped uh, on what? A technicality? Or I don't know. Maybe sometimes we do. But in this case, in case the backstory is Christian Coleman last year, we thought he had three missed tests. He sort of got off with the date of one changing. So he only had two missed tests. Coleman almost got banned a year ago. So now we're all super vigilant and he gets this third test. So at this point, I feel like he couldn't just say like, yeah, I missed it. Like you have to have a different story. So maybe something's getting lost in translation. But as presented, I have a lot of sympathy for Christian. Even the last time with the last time, like I don't have anything out for the guy. Like he thinks we don't like him. His dad thinks we're kind of out to get him. Christian, when he tells this story and doesn't get defensive about stuff, like I don't know, like the, all these athletes, just get your story out there, talk to people. When you clam up with the media, it comes back to hurt you. But in this case, like we had the Sawa, he uh, had Nasir test. She tested positive. World champion 400 meters. She did She didn't missed three test missed
0: positive. Tests. Well, then she had three. She had four missed tests. She had four missed tests. Gabby Thomas of Harvard.
2: In New Balance, three mist tests. It seems like, for whatever reason, the, they're now coming down on these missed tests. It feels like you used to never get people banned with this. So I don't know if they're interpreting the rules differently or just saying, we're going to make examples with this. But you almost hate for the example to be made with the most prominent male sprinter in America.
0: In the world. He's the Olympic 100-meter favorite.
2: This would be huge if he's out of
1: the sport. So this has to be right. Folks, And if you're an international viewer, please understand... Walden has sympathy for Christian Coleman. Remember, folks, if you're an American, you have all the sympathy for the American drug cheeks. Gabby Thomas is clean. Christian Coleman is clean. Obviously. John, you're half Brit. You can also throw in Mo Farah. He didn't mean to not answer that doorbell a couple years ago. Christine O'Rugu, of course, she's clean. Yes, people seem to be biased towards people from their own country. But um, you know, it is kind of interesting. You know, it's like
0: <sighs> Well, NASA, NASA ran a time that has only been run before by dopers, she's represented by an agent who has had multiple athletes banned, and she runs for a federation with a very poor anti-doping record. I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons to be skeptical about NASA, and the other one is she hasn't come out and provided an explanation for any of these missed tests. Christian Coleman has.
1: Well, yes. I mean, Nasser admitted to missing the test. So, yes, that's the difference. But, John, if we're going to use performances to be suspicious, have you ever looked at the all-time top 100-meter list? Almost every single one of them has been popped for doping.
0: <laughs> I have. I have. So, look, look, there's always going to be suspicions. Anytime anyone runs in the nine sevens. there's going to be questions. But I think the thing – here's the difference about Coleman this time. Last, the last three failures he had, you look at all of them and you say, this was an athlete who was being – lazy careless he wasn't taking the whereabouts system seriously he wasn't being totally diligent every time he went somewhere to update his system and i think if that had been the case again this time and he had and maybe it was maybe he had said my one hour window is my house i wasn't in that house during that one hour window if that's the case i think you there aren't going to be that many people that have sympathy for him but what he's saying is no i actually was there for at least part of the window, and that they either show up they either showed up to the wrong address or I was there and they didn't test me. So I, I do I'm I'm willing to listen to him. Like, look, my my aim as a journalist, it's not to get every single athlete banned for doping. I mean, I want the cheaters out of the sport, I think, as any fan of the sport does, but I also want the clean athletes in the sport. And he has raised enough doubt that I think it's fair that this needs to be looked at in more detail and we shouldn't just launch in and say this guy has to be gone from the sport.
1: Correct, and I i think one of the phrases I put at the end of the article is, "I don't believe in gotcha." I don't believe in gotcha journalism. I don't believe in gotcha drug testing either. So it's very weird to me that the wrong address was apparently put down by the doping control officer. I wanted to know the details of that. Why isn't this released immediately? Did they put like fifty three thirty two instead of fifty two twenty three? You know, whatever was it just some minor typo that can be explained, or you know, if not, that would be you know does. D- is there GPS evidence of where the doping control officer was in a picture maybe of them knocking on the house? I mean, if you're knocking on the next door neighbor's house, that's a real problem. So we, we we need more facts to come out. But it was interesting, John. I did notice, you know, I know you don't let me pat myself on the back, but I think I angered Mr. Coleman last time in September when I said, I'm so sick of this stuff. This guy needs to be drug tested, should agree to be drug tested every day for the rest of his life. and. Mr. Coleman said that's not feasible, that's ridiculous. How dare me accuse his son of being a drug cheat? Well, guess what? Didn't Mr. Coleman, Christian Coleman himself yesterday
0: say in his... Here's the statement, Robert. Here's the statement. I am willing to take a tr- drug test every single day for the rest of my career for all I care to prove my innocence. But he, here's here's the other thing.
1: Wow, this is fascinating. We're coming together as a country. Christian Coleman has come to my side and now I've come to his side. This is what we need, America.
0: People have launched into this though, and they're saying, "Well, actually, there is a way to be tested every single day, or to be held accountable for it, and it's to be in your whereabouts window when you say you're going to be there and be exactly at that location." And if he didn't do that in this case, well, that's not really showing a great commitment to being exactly, you know, to being available for a test every single day. And that's what it comes down to. It essentially comes down. We've got the DCO saying he was there the whole time. We've got Coleman saying. He was there for at least part of it. That is where this case is going to turn. And look, I mean, huge ramifications for the sport. This is a guy... This is Coleman's chance to win the Olympic gold. There's no guarantees by 2024 that he's still going to be the best sprinter in the world. But I think most people would expect him to win the Olympic 100-meter title next year in Tokyo. So obviously it's massive if the best sprinter in the world is banned. Yeah. Well, we could probably talk about Coleman for the whole hour here, but we should probably move on. Any last thoughts feelings comments on this case guys
1: no let's get to the action john and where do you want to go do you want to go to the impossible games do you want to go let's to- go to
0: weldon real quick he looks like he has one more thing he wants to say here i just think th- with the mist
2: test it's not as clear-cut as like a positive test and now you get into like he said she said right so i never thought like someone could just say well i was there the whole time so y- the burden of, of proof and the technology exists. For the doping control officers to sort of prove where they are, show where they are, just make it pretty conclusive. I was there, and also we need consistent procedures. If if USADA always calls Coleman during the one hour window and says, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm at your place. Maybe he's in the basement working out. Maybe he's out back." I mean, there's lots of reasons somebody may not hear a doorbell legitimately. Seriously, um, that needs to be consistent. You everybody gets a phone call or they don't get a phone call. But let's just start documenting this stuff because. I don't know. I'm sick of talking about Christian Coleman missing drug test or anyone missing drug test and athletes. If you got to be somewhere one hour the a day, be there or be prepared for the consequences. But if he was actually there, <laughs> he shouldn't be banned. So we're kind of back where we started.
0: Shall we move on to the impossible games? We actually had an actual track meet. Well, kind of actual track meet, but I I don't know. It felt like a Diamond League to me. I was like recapping the stuff. I was watching it. I was taking screenshots. I was writing a preview. I was like, oh, this, this kind of feels like a normal meet again. I mean, we're not gonna, not going to have another one for a month. But I enjoyed the Impossible Games, and I was like, what about you guys?
2: Well, full disclosure, we hadn't had a pro track meet in what since Worlds, pretty much a Diamond League type quality big event. I was all excited about it, and then I forgot it was on. <laughs> So I think it was like in the last hour of the window, but fortunately, thanks to YouTube TV, it was being recorded. So then I I watched it and, you know, watching a bunch of Norwegian 200 meter hurdlers compete against each other wasn't the best thing, but I enjoyed it. It was like competition, just it's almost like a novelty act at this point. So they had a few sprint events, kind of like one-on-one. They had one time trial, right, with just Karsten Warholm. Multiple time trials. Multiple uh, but, time trials. And then the, the big event was was they had like a 25K. Fortunately, that stuff wasn't on TV. And
0: then... you What, you didn't want to watch Sandre Nordstad-Moen run 62.5 laps in an empty stadium, Weldon?
2: Yeah, well, how far? They had a 30K, what was it?
0: 25,000 meters on the track. European record.
2: But the big event was the two k of Team Kenya versus Team Norway, the Ingerbritsen family versus Chariot, Manangoy. and the guy you guys were all praising and telling me who was going to beat beat both of them. I don't think it happened, John. I can't even remember his name. I've already forgotten his name.
0: Edwin Melley He, uh, yeah, he he got he finished ten seconds behind Chariot. He beat Maningoy. but no, I mean that I think. That thing, I'm going to give credit to Robert. He said from the beginning, "Look, this thing's totally unfair. It's slanted against the Kenyans, and it was." And I think what made it worse was not only were the Kenyans at altitude, the weather in Nairobi was miserable. It was like rainy. They said there was some wind. It just looked. It did not look like fun to run a 1500 two uh, in. Whereas in Oslo, it could have been better. It couldn't have been better. It just looked amazing. Nice weather. So the the Norwegians. I mean breaks some ran really fast, 450.01. He broke the European record. Uh, it was, I think it was the sixth fastest time ever, seventh fastest if you count indoor times. And obviously people don't run the 2K too much, but I mean, the way he ran it, he looked He looked phenomenal. He came through in 355 at 1600 meters, just looking effortless and then picked it up to run a 54, no problem. I mean, that's some really Im- impressive stuff. He, I think even a fully fit Chariot, that's not going to be easy for him. Uh, but the, the Kenyans did say, hey, you know, you guys, we've got, we're have got we hosting a Continental Tour meet in Nairobi later this season. You should come down. We should have it on a level playing field. And I think we all want to see that, real racing on the same track at the same time at some point this season.
1: I mean, I feel a little bit bad about this. I, I, everything ends up being about me praising myself about how right I was. But I... I, I when this thing was announced, I'm like, wait, someone's competing at 6,000 feet. Someone else is competing at sea level. How in the hell is this anywhere close to fair? John spent weeks trying to tell me how it still might be fair. And then I was, because of some treadmill challenge where all these people were running at flag fast times and flagstaff, I had almost convinced myself that altitude no longer mattered for people born at altitude and Kip Kano and something. And then this race happens, and I'm like, oh, my God. But this race confirmed me, to me two things that I already knew. One, altitude matters. Two, the only way – well, not the only way because, my God, Jacob Ingram is good. I mean, the whole family is sick. Imagine if you run 456. Folks, this is a mile and then another lap. Five laps of the track, under 60 seconds a lap. You run it in 456.91, and you're only the third best guy in your family.
0: And he had run a 216 Norwegian record in the 1K 45 minutes earlier. Remember that? Yeah, that's
1: Philip Ingram. So the family went 450, 453, and 456. But – what impressed me, folks, we're not, no one talked about this. or Maybe briefly mentioned John. The Kenyans, how dumb. You go out and 55 in 55 on the first lap at 6,000 feet of altitude. Like the one thing you don't want to do at altitude is like get an oxygen jet early. Now, I was asking John Kellogg. I was like, why would they do that? He said, well, maybe, you know, there's less resistance. Maybe that 55 felt easy <laughs> at 6,000 feet. But this reminds me of I, I I talked to Asbel Kiprop about this one time. I'm like, why do you guys always in the Diamond Leagues go out in like 55 on the first lap of a, 50, of a of a of a 1500? Like that's not the pace you need to run. It's way too fast. And Kiprop's like, well, but then I get to rest a little bit in the third lap. I'm like, no, run more even paced. You don't go out hard, super hard. If anything, particularly when you don't know your fitness, go out a little bit conservative, like the Britson's and then slam the last lap. So I do think this does show you some of the hope. For, you know, people like Matthew Centroits, if you get the tactics right, you can beat people that are superior athletes. Because it, it amazed me. There was no excuses for this. They had their own rabbits. They had, uh, yes, the weather wasn't great. But how do you not have someone standing 100 meters in saying the proper pace to go out?
2: Well, Robert, you're missing the story. You said it was, there's no excuse. This is an mm. example of white
1: privilege, okay. man. That's a good point.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, up in Norway... They had this really cool, what's it called? This wave light technology. Wave light pacing system. I've heard about it, but never actually seen it implemented in me. So there must be a light system put on the inside of the rail of the track. It essentially lights up green and red. Green, red in front, means you're going too fast. Green is the pace. If you're in the green, you're on pace for the record. And this thing just circles the track, and you're, you run right next to it, and you're going to be on whatever pace you're supposed to be. They had that going in Norway and in Kenya, they're out there on their own at an altitude, like with some rabbit going out way too hard. I mean, that wasn't fair, but privilege, you know? Also, we should just, I think we should use the word privilege, because like it didn't matter what color you were in Kenya. If you had this technology, if they had a white guy running there, he would have been disadvantaged. So some forms of privilege are just privilege. A, a black guy in Norway would have been privileged to have it. So, but the technology was North cool, privilege. but it was a, yeah. It was unfair, right? Like, I almost think if you you shouldn't allow that, right? If we're trying to set up a, a race, you shouldn't have lights pacing one guy's and the lights not pacing the other. Forget about the altitude and that sort of stuff.
1: I didn't watch the whole hour because I, well, John, when you have children, you'll understand why. The kids start screaming, you got stuff to do. But the pacing technology, the wave light thing, that was the highlight to me. I guess we'd seen it before somewhere, but I'd never seen it in its full display. This thing is amazing. To me, I'm wondering. Should we just ban rabbits and use this? For now on, if you want a world record, it has to be an unrabbited thing just with the technology. That would be really cool. We could reset the record books. Um, I thought this thing was amazing. It, 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 you have no excuse to blow the pace. The question I have about it is, can you set it to run a certain pace per like, – like if it's going to be a four-minute mile, does it have to be 60 seconds per lap? Or can you train it to go, okay, I'm going to run a negative split, though. I'm going to run 61, 61, 61, 57. Because if you can do that, this thing's just absolutely amazing. And is it legal?
2: I mean, well, you can't have a robot breaking the wind, but like this technology is
1: completely different.
0: Where in the rules does it say you can't have a lit up info? I doubt there's a rule preventing, specifically preventing this sort of thing.
1: I think they actually have changed the rules, so this might be allowed or whatever. This wasn't.
0: I mean, Philip broke the Norwegian record using it, so I'm pretty sure it's legal. I th- I think it was great, like you guys said. I mean, obviously it's unfair when you have two people at different tracks and one's using it, and one's not. But for one race, I mean, if everyone knows the pace, I don't really see what's against the spirit of the sport there. And like you said, this look—you don't have people drafting off the, the lead pacer, so it hurts the person who's in second place, but or the first racer, but. It also cuts down on some idiot taking it out in 54 seconds. I don't want to call the Kenyan Pacer an idiot, but, you know, someone someone screwing up the paces. You just did. You yeah, just I'm, did. I'm sorry. I retract that. You're not an idiot if you screw up your Pacing. You just made a mistake. We all do it. I just made a mistake now calling him an idiot. So let's move on.
1: Okay, let's move on to some other events. This was a cool show. But actually, before we get to the event, folks, we've been talking for, what, 20 minutes, 25? I don't know how long... Have you signed up for the coaching program while you've been listening? Let's run.com slash coaching. Also, if you bought some shoes, let's run.com slash shoes. Support the site, please.
0: Pause the podcast right now. Sign up. All right. And you're back. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. Why don't you do that too? Comment. Tell us how much you like the podcast. We love ourselves. We hope you guys love us as much as we love ourselves.
1: Or call us 844 four Let's run 844-538-7786, extension 3. You'll be connected to my cell phone.
0: Now, one thing I discovered watching this meet, guys, I already kind of knew this. I kind of thought I would be willing to watch Karsten Warholm just race against himself because this guy's so damn entertaining. But he confirmed it. He started the race. They had some cardboard cutouts in the stands. The spectators in Oslo were ridiculous. You had cardboard cutouts. There was Homer Simpson. There was a very badly drawn Michael Jordan. And then you also had just, like, pictures. And there was one of Warholm and his coach that he put the 300-meter hurdles start and then he, he just gets all psyched up. It's like a regular Diamond League for him. He's going crazy. He goes out, storms out of the blocks, long striding. He breaks the world best for the 300-meter hurdles, which was he got 33.78. The old record was 34.48. But I don't know. I, I still had fun watching Carsten Walholm, even though he wasn't racing anyone.
1: I agree. I was amazed by him, John. The, the way he attacked... Like, I want to see him run the 100 hurdles. The way he sprinted out of the blocks... The guy is, he's so, such a competitor. He has such joy in what he does. Like, you can see that he's focused right now, all the time, even when nothing's going on. And I really think that's one of the reasons why he's successful. Obviously, he's talented, but the ability to focus, to go after this with no fans, no crowd, nothing, was very impressive.
0: Also, did you guys see the puppets in the stands in Oslo? It was, it, it was very odd. It was, These people, they essentially had sticks that they attached to their arms and legs. And the sticks, like, ran parallel to each other. So there was, like, a dummy in front and a dummy behind. And it meant whenever you made any sort of action with your arms and legs, both the dummies would make the same action because, you know, they were attached to you you by sticks. I just, it was like, I guess it was a joke or it was just a way to make it look like there was more people there than there actually was. I found it very amusing, but also totally ridiculous.
2: Yeah, I saw it as a way to make one person look like four or five, but they had like four puppeters. So I'm like, okay, now you're to give 16 people in the arena instead of four. I didn't get it, but it was a good attempt. It was good to have something. I'm glad to see track and field doing it, but I think we're going to come back to what I first proposed and you guys mocked, outdoor events with reduced capacity. It's legal in Texas. You can have 25% capacity for pro outdoor sporting events now. I think other states will probably go that direction. Um or I guess you could have it in Oklahoma in an indoor is indoor track coming back to Oklahoma.
0: No social distancing there. Just as many people as you can pack in if it's a presidential rally.
2: Twenty thousand people are supposed to go indoors for President Trump's arena a rally this weekend. John, go.
0: I mean, look, he needs his ego to be stroked. He's had all these people criticizing him. He hasn't been able to get in front of his base and have him in at the attention that he so desires. So he's getting, at this point, he's willing to forego any social distancing worries and go out there and say, I need the attention. I need love. You know, forget the social distancing guidelines. If you get sick, don't sue me.
1: I, I heard that... It- I heard that 800,000 people had signed up to try to come to this thing. Why in the hell is it an indoor arena? This just seems stupid to me. Like, do, are the football stadiums in Oklahoma? Like, is Oklahoma and Oklahoma State afraid to be associated with Trump, so they don't want to have it outdoors at a football stadium? Like, that this doesn't make any sense to me.
0: I mean, are you, are yeah, you well, saying that Trump may have made a bad decision, that he may have done something dumb? That doesn't sound like the guy.
2: John, now, you need to take it one step further and denigrate people in red states and say, these, what's the term? I forgot. Fly states? Deplorables? Yeah, the deplorables, John. How they're gonna kill themselves off. Come on. Make it really make it really over the top. <laughs>
0: I'm not saying that. I don't want anyone to die from this thing. I just think Trump's an idiot. And if I look, I wouldn't go to a Trump rally to begin with, but especially I wouldn't go to a Trump rally without social distancing. And they're probably the right is probably gonna come back and say, Well, look, all the protesters at these Black Lives Matters events weren't adhering to social distancing, and that's a whole different other can of worms. I'm not getting into that.
2: I mean, honestly, I, I I saw something in Minnesota, the positive test rate for people been to the rally was very low. And hopefully these outdoor events can show something positive for running events. And we can have running events I posted last night in a thread. And some races are coming back. And apparently in Oklahoma, there is no official rule banning mass gathering. So you could have road races there if people think they could be done safely. But the the, the bigger question to me is like, just, I'm just curious, like, what's the biggest mass event held in the United States in the last three months, period, indoors, period? The most number of people indoors at one time for anything. I, I would love to hear that. And is it the famous choir practice that we always mention every week? Those are old people. I've got to give that out there. Those are very old people at the choir practice. But, like, like, I'm just – just the optics – maybe Trump doesn't care about the optics. Have it at an outdoor thing. But like, the, the biggest one ever is your own rally because if people get sick, there's no good – there's no – Nothing positive to come for it. If they don't get sick, I guess you're good to go. Like You look like a hero, but a bit risky if you ask me. Okay. Yeah.
1: This, this whole thing is crazy. People are, again, I've been saying this for weeks. They're not acting rationally on both sides of the, of, of the aisle Here, I'm for sporting events with fans, certainly more than 25%. I think you could have 50%, but I'm, I'm saying no cheering. Again, you got to have the noisemakers because the yelling is bad. They should be wearing masks. But some of the stuff is crazy, John. I mean, we've been ripping Trump. Bill De Blasio has asked the contra- COVID contract tracers not to ask positive cases if they if they attended the BLM protests. Like, people, we don't we we want factual data. If a mass gathering is leading to, to more disease, we need to know that.
0: Well, just tell them we're not going to arrest you if you were there. Just let us know. You know, this is,
1: like, like, let's deny science. This is absurd. Anyways, guys, let's talk about something else.
0: Wait, wait. I have one question, Weldon. You were drinking. Did your Pepsi can, or is that a Pepsi can? Did it have a pen logo on it? It kind of looked like a pen logo. Was it? Oh, it's from a cup. Okay. I thought it was like some special edition, like beer or Pepsi. You could buy it with a pen logo.
2: No, I'm drinking a smoothie and I, th- I noticed this today. My wife went to pen. So I there's a pen cup in there. And there's also an Ohio State cup in my drawer. I have no idea. Those are the two cups, big cups I can choose from. There's a third with like a boat logo on it. But I was, I meant to ask her like who do we know that went to Ohio State? So go guys.
0: Ohio State that's not on brand for this all Ivy League podcast. I mean even even Weldon's wife went to Penn. This is like and then we got Nia Akins coming up later who also went to Penn. So we're all
1: in. My mother in law went to Penn as well, folks. We're all in on Penn today. Nia Akins coming up later the interview. But folks, I want to go on to something else. Really cool story um, coming out of the Washington D.C. area. Kira DiMato who. Is 35, Had stopped competing for 10 years, and had gained like over 50 pounds. A few years ago, she couldn't even run a 5K in 30 minutes. She's back competing. You may know Robert, her.
0: there's hope for you. This is. Yes. This, this is the female Rojo.
1: You may have known her as Kara Karlstrom. Karlstrom, when she ran for American University, actually ran for Matthew Sintowitz. Matthew Sintowitz's father, Matt Sintowitz, at American University and College. She's 35, took 10 years off the sport, could not run 30 minutes for 5K a few years ago. She's just run 1504 for a 5K time trial. And the cool thing, another cool thing here is, guess who her high school coach was? It was Alan Rask. It was Scott Rasco, who was Alan Webb's high school coach, who some vilified for, I don't know, his, his handling of Webb, even though he did guide people. Last time I checked, he was the one coaching Webb, right? When Webb ran the 346. Mile.
0: He was Webb's best coach. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, anyways, Rasco is now her coach again. And she's run 15.04. Now, she didn't even break 16 minutes in college, but she was a very good college runner. She was sixth at the NCAA Championships in 2005, I think it was, John.
0: She beat Molly Huddle, and she beat Amy Hastings, or now Amy Craig, in that race.
1: So she was sixth in 1958. Amy Hastings was 13th in 2009, and Molly Huddle was 15th in 2013. They were all seniors that year. So really cool story, folks. This proves to me... One of my favorite phrases, I think nicole has invented it, but I don't know. Talent does not go away. She's a mother of two. She's a realtor. She's – this is just incredible, really. I mean, how cool is this story? And then I, 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 there's a RunWashington.com article from 2000, April of 2019 when she was running much slower. I mean, her progress has been amazing. But she was really praising her coach, saying, I don't know how people do it without a coach. So if you're thinking about signing up for the Luton program – She says this, Scott Rasko is my saving grace. I don't tell him that enough. So he's helping me to keep it my fun thing and also add structure, work towards a goal. So, um, you know, she's got the kids, she's got a job, and she says, quote, Running is my thing, and I'm worried to go all in because I don't want that to take away from it being my fun thing. It's my me time. When I don't have the kids, I don't have four eyes looking at me and asking me for more orange juice. I was worried that if I took it too seriously, I would lose part of that. So apparently at least last April, Rasko would just give her a weekly mileage goal and a couple workouts and she would manage it with her day. Um, but she was 15th at the Olympic trials. She's run 2:34. Olympic the
0: marathon. marathon trials. Yeah. In February. So big year, I think Robert, so this thing obviously really awesome story here. And, uh, Proof, like you said, you know, you can take a break and still come back. Even, you know, 35 even for female distance runner. That's not even that old at this point because, you know, we've seen women, American women recently have success well into their 30s. But the one thing that this made me think of was USATF and the IOC, sorry, and World Athletics, their decision to freeze the qualifying period. So Kira Demado, she's not someone that would have the Olympic standard or the USA standard in track and field, she just got it. Now, I'm not saying, look, she could come back next year and run 1504 again, maybe, but this, she's one of the people who is not, you know, he's being hurt by this freeze on qualifying period because she just ran 1504, and that time, first of all, it was, you know, it wasn't an official meet, I don't think, but second of all, even if she ran an official meet, between now and November 30th, it's not going to count.
1: Well, in this case, I don't think it's a big deal because you're not going to make the U.S. Olympic team without the standard. I mean, you got to be that type of quality. She can get it next year. What's really bothering me, John, is and I think it came out last week is USATF is not going to allow any times from this summer to c- qualify you for the Olympic trials. This is stupid. Again, it's like the World of Athletics. If you hit the standard, it should count. If you hit the standard for the Olympic trials. It should count. And USATF, you, you reached out to them for comment, right? And, and and their explanation was, well, not every state is in the same point of reopening. Who cares, folks? Life isn't fair. Track and field, come on, running a time trial is not dangerous in terms of COVID. Like if, if somebody's, to me, it's inspirational if they're able to keep training during this time frame. So I'm disappointed that they're not allowing these times to, you know, count for anything.
0: Yeah, the rationale, they say, different areas of the country and different nations have varying restrictions on gatherings, activities, and resources. COVID-19 cases and active community transmission varies between locations for fairness, qualifying, suspended during this window. I mean, my whole thing is like, look, you're always going to have differences between people and locations. Not everyone's going to have the same opportunity. Someone who's unsponsored in New York is not going to have the opportunity to come and run as many, you know, a great fast 10K that some sponsored pro out on the West Coast might, you know, it's just not equal. So it's harder for them to travel to California, even without a pandemic. So I just think, I don't know, you're never going to have a perfectly level playing field.
1: Of course, resources are never going to be the same. I mean, look at the college teams. Like, how close are you to Stanford? It's easy to get out to California. One of the reasons why Kira Diamanto didn't run fast in college is because she went to American University. They don't have a big budget. She wasn't flying out to Stanford to run time trials. She was just getting shaved and qualifying for NCAAs every year. So, you know, so, so I couldn't believe it. Some of the people I messed up with were driving me nuts. They were like, oh, this is really an indictment of Matthew Sintry, your college, Matt Centrowitz your college coach. I was like, are you crazy? He took a girl who didn't even make nationals in high school. She was ninth. She was good in high school. I mean, she was ninth in Footwork or South back when only eight, eight people made it. So she dismissed going to nationals. But she took her to sixth in the country, twice top 20 in State Cross. So and, and she ran around 16 minutes. So basically she was like a 17 flat girl in high school. I mean, she thinks she ran 1030 for 3200. That's like 17 flat. She came down to basically 16 flat in, in high school and now in four years, and now 15 years later, she's run, you know, 15 flat. So I don't know. I, I think <laughs> Central which just just fine with her in college.
0: Yeah. Now, Robert, there's one thing. I don't want to be totally alarmist here, but it is possible that, in fact, zero athletes have the Olympic trials standard right now in track and field. Because if you go on their website, it says... All periods for qualifying performances for the U.S. Olympic trials are pending and to be based on the extent of continuation of the COVID-19 virus pandemic and revised Tokyo Olympic Games qualifying procedures. Now, I reached out to them and quali- because it, this document came out, you know, they published it probably last year sometime, saying, hey, here's when the qual- window for qualifying for the trials is. I looked back at the 2016 trials, the window for qualifying for that began like may 2015 so you would think at some point on that website i assume they said hey any performances from may 2019 onwards can be used to qualify for 2020 trials it doesn't say anything like that there are no dates listed at all so i emailed again i emailed usatf i was like hey what does this mean when is the window does any past performances count they have not gotten back to me and clarified that yet so I don't know. It's possible they're going to make everyone just requalify once you know once December first starts, which obviously would hurt people who are injured, you know, and don't get fit until right before the trials. So I, I don't. I'm I'm not saying that is the case. I'm saying there is uncertainty about when this window is.
1: What a shocker, John! USATF is not being op- clear and communicating well about something. I mean. John, when you're contacting them, can you also get back to me about the – again, next year in the Olympic trials, we're going to have 30 people in the three-round 1,500. It's the dumbest thing ever. They need to have at least 36. I would say 48 people in the 1,500. Just the incompetence of those people drives me nuts, and I, I don't want to get into it. So, John, before we get to the Nia Akins interview, a couple other things we could we could talk about. We could talk about the Lamine-Diak trial. Pretty interesting. I mean, this is a big thing. I guess this guy was the head of the World Athletics. If you turn on, like, the BBC News, like, we have that, I have that in my car, like, they're talking about this on there. I mean, the corruption trial of, of the head of former head. He, he headed World Athletics for 16 years. That's a big story. Well,
0: it's a big deal, but I just think that we already know all this. Like, all this all this stuff came out. He We know he was accepting bribes. We know his son was accepting, you know, skimming off the top, all this stuff. To me, it's just about he's like 87 at this point. What are they going to do to punish him? How is he going to be banned? But I think the reputation lost to World Athletics, unless new details emerge, I haven't really seen any new damning details compared to what already came out in the news, you know, four or five years ago.
1: It's kind of interesting to me. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about since I'm on my anti-USATF, Matt, was rant is, who do you think? is going to make more money. The, the budget of World Athletics is about $60 million. It's a little bit more than USATF's, but it's, it's roughly the same size as World Athletics. But who do you think is more and more money in their career when it's all said and done? Max Siegel at USATF or Lomain Diak counting his bribes at World Athletics?
0: I mean, probably Lomain Diak, right? Well, but, you're
1: saying probably, but in one of these things, it didn't even seem like that much money. It was like $1.5 million or something funded an entire presidential election in some country. With Senegal, Sen- or Senegal or something? Senegal. I, 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 I was like, "Wow, like that's a that's an annual bonus for Max Siegel." So again, you know, hey, I'm I'm not saying that taking an outright bribe is exactly the same thing, but it's interesting what is a bribe in business and what is allowed, like. Again, if a professional sports owner says, hey, if you don't give me $500 million, I'm going to move this team to another city, for some reason, that's not considered extortion. That's just smart business practice. But if a guy in the street does that, they get arrested.
0: Well, I think also when it involves covering up doping, Positive doping tests, you know. But a, hey, a- last
1: time I checked, the Russian that paid five hundred thousand dollars, for her marathon positive, she still tested positive. So she
0: got- she was also allowed to compete at the Olympics.
1: Well, she got screwed though. She paid five hundred thousand dollars and still got banned. I'd be so irate about that. Anyways, how about if you don't want to talk about that some more? I mean, uh, we haven't talked about the big news.
0: Rojo's coaching tree. We Thank you. Bring it up. I
1: mean, let's let's bring it up. I didn't I even mean-
0: know you had a coaching tree, Robert.
1: I guess you guys don't follow the results closely. Are you aware of what happened, folks, at the 2020 Desert Dream Last Hurrah meet last weekend? I mean, this should be 18-point bold font on let'srun.com, and I don't even know if Steve, our front-page guy, even put it on there.
0: I saw a couple Cruz Culpepper, and some other guy ran 148. I know you're not Cruz Culpepper's coach. Folks,
1: there was a meet held in Arizona. John Lester, a high school junior, just finished his junior year out in California, 17 years of age. He has won the race 148-26.
0: He beat Culpepper. Wow. Yeah, that's really good. Destroyed
1: Culpepper. And folks, this is this is vindication for the Rojo coaching tree. His coach is none other than Jason Oswald, one of my former athletes at Cornell. Walden knows him well. We see him every four years at the Olympic Trials. John, you've probably met him at the Olympic Trials. So, my coaching tree is producing nicely.
0: Wait, Robert, I'm interested now. What's the fastest anyone you ever coached ran for 800 meters?
1: Well, this is faster than the Cornell school record, unfortunately. So,
0: (laughs) So wait, a kid you coached coached a high schooler to a faster time than you ever coached any collegians to?
1: Craig, I think we, this is I, the J
0: This is what is his name, Jason Oswald? Or, yes, I think that's it's an endorsement for his coaching tree.
1: Well, for all I know, Jason is doing exactly taking all the workouts I gave him and then not using them on these kids because, um, uh, I mean, Jason was a great guy. I think
0: he, we need Jason on the podcast here to say what exactly he took from you. Maybe he learned what not to do. Well, hey,
1: know? but that would still be my coaching tree, right? That's
0: yeah, uh, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. If
1: I explain it and he says like, that doesn't make any sense, I'm going to do the opposite. So
0: he still, yeah, you still, he still learned from you. I'll give, you, I'll give you some credit for this, Robert.
1: But uh, I've, I've, I've been contacted by college coaches. Some, a couple of college coaches, or at least one, has realized. Wait a minute, you coached his coach. I need to get this guy. So,
0: yeah, he's a, he's only a junior as well. One forty-eight two is a junior. I mean, that's phenomenal,
1: John Lester. No, it's one of the fastest times ever for a high school junior. Let me look here for the Facebook post that Jason said. According to Coach Oswald's uh, Facebook post, it's the number three time ever run by a high school junior in the United States. So he went out in twenty five seven fifty two six one nineteen high one nineteen for, for six hundred and um, pretty impressive stuff.
0: All right, shall we? Shall we go to message board threads because you guys, this is sometimes you guys do things where I'm like, yeah, they're definitely twins. They both come up with the same idea, or they both write the same tweet or have the same message board post. And this time you guys both suggested the same thread. It, clearly it applies to you because you're both over 40, but one of you guys want to take this?
2: John, the message board is my specialty coming up with the thread of the week, the weeded thread of the week. I don't know if you guys haven't, if anyone's actually noticed in the podcast, I haven't said anything for about 20 minutes. Had to get the baby out of the house, but also more importantly, I've been searching around Wait,
0: out of the house. Where did, I hope you didn't just leave, leave her on the lawn. Well then,
2: I nope. um, Had a self-driving car pick her up. She's, they're going to just drive her around for a while so she doesn't cry. It's a new service. <laughs> Seriously, think about it. Elon Musk, think about it. It'd be genius. Like, okay, the car breaks down, and a drone could fly to it real quickly. Anyway. <laughs> All right. We were talking about Scott Rasko and stuff and talent. Robert said talent doesn't go away. Before we get to the thread of the week, I would like to read this thing. This is from August seventeenth, two 2010, let'srun.com, discussing Alan Webb. Will Webb ever be a player in the world scene again? We can't say that with 100% certainty, but we definitely say it's more likely than not. We will say one thing with certainty, and this is bolded. Qu- quote, if healthy in both 2011 and 2012, and then there's a qualifier, we won at least five races each year. Alan Webb will run at least sub 335 or 31320 3- or the equivalent at least once or letsrun.com will pay a lucky visitor $3,350. So, I'm this well, I'm looking at the results. He didn't do this. He didn't do it. 10 years have passed. This thing is up. I'm claiming this for myself cuz I did not write that. I believe Robert wrote it. And so Robert, please you got my address, send me my check for $3,350. I knew this was out there. No one has, I've known it, mentioned it. I couldn't find it. I'm like, I know we wrote something once and I'm pretty sure Webb never hit the time. Official proof, he never hit the times.
0: I'm looking here though, 2011, he had five races. One of them was a road mile and three of the, two of them were indoors. Three of them were indoors. I mean, he didn't race after April 30th. I think you can. I think you guys can weasel your way out of that and say you didn't race enough in 2011. I count
2: two 1500s.
0: No, but one of those was an en route. One
2: two miles a DNF mile doesn't count though. Oh, you're right. Wellington, some bullshit meet. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you. You just saved Robert three thousand three. Look,
0: I'm saving the company money. I expect a 10 percent finder's fee in Rule Square.
2: Okay, so on to threads of the week. This is one, Robert, and I both flagged independently. People over 40 on here, what is the number one thing people should not take for granted? This thread made me feel old. I couldn't even click on it. I saw the thread, and I go, that's a great thread, and then I didn't click on it. But I remember when I was like 27, 28, and Eddie Hallabeck, who later became a, convicted for doping, he was still competing as a master. And I'm like, if I'm ever, if I'm ever that old and still running, like, forget it. And now we got Abdi Abdurrahman, who's a couple of years younger than me, <laughs> used to compete against me making the Olympics at over age 40. So the poster wants to know, I'm, call- I'm not calling you guys old, but what part of your youth would you recommend we get youngsters to get the most out of life?
1: Robert, you got any advice for the youngsters out there? I don't have any advice, but I remember, and I, I said this before, I think, on the podcast. I remember when I was in my 20s reading a similar thread to this about what it's like to be old. I can't find it. I wish I could find it. And it was fascinating to me to think, like, what's it like? And someone's like, you know, when you get to be, like, 35, like, you're no longer going to want to go out and, like, stay up late and drink and wake up hungover the next day or whatever it is. Like, that's just not going to be appealing. You're going to want to go to bed a little bit earlier and do a little bit less stuff. And it's like – and you're not going to really regret it. It's totally true. Like, you get tired earlier and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I just think that you seem to get busier, I think, when you get older. Like, your time is – you don't have any responsibilities when you're not married, when you don't have kids. So you can just totally be self-absorbed and do what you want. So I would say realize, you know, if you want to go to Europe or go to a trip or whatever, it's going to be hard to do that when you've got a family or stuff like that. You want to go all in and running? You don't, you've got a limited time to do that as well.
2: My advice to anyone, I guess, would be, and when you're young, you don't realize this, we've all got a limited time on this planet, as I get older, sort of, I, I contemplate my mortality a bit. Like, I'm most likely on my back nine of life. And just, but then you hear, read about, you know, someone's friend of mine, his mom died of cancer at, like, 38. You can get hit by a car tomorrow. Something could happen. Like, just make the most of it every single day. We're all really blessed and try to make the most of it. One poster has pointed out, though getting the most out of life and what you wouldn't take for granted. There are different questions. I thought that was an interesting take on it. So we'll link to that one in the show notes. Other thread might be a little more of interest to, I don't know, it's a little more topical in terms of elite running. This one came out yesterday before the Christian Coleman news. And it's, there's going to be some big doping news this month. Now these threads are known on let's run for like predicting major doping, bust, everything. So I clicked on it. I'm like, oh, this is going to say that Coleman was going to get popped. Actually not. It's pointing out that the International Olympic Committee has gone back and retested 80% of the London Olympic samples. And there's actually an eight-year statute of limitations, which ends August 12th. So they're assuming that that means we're going to see a bunch of positive tests announced in the next two months. Wow, I can't believe the London Olympics is already at the end of like the drug lo- window. We can go back and pop somebody. I think it should be unlimited. I agree. Maybe unless the athlete like voluntarily comes forward and says, hey, no one knows this, but I cheated. Because that would encourage people to come forward and like we won't take away your medal or something or we'll let you do something. Who knows? So that is something to look after. The... And I won the Olympics. Let's see. Oh, yeah, there's quite a few people I could.
0: I, I know. I, I I was thinking about that. I'm like, there are some people, gold medalists, who have not been busted, who I, you know, I think a lot of people think yeah, that person was probably cheating. So it will be very interesting to see if anything comes of that.
2: Men's mid-distance, men John? Is that where you're kind of hidden?
0: I'm not going to tell you what events. I just There are people I think probably were cheating, but I'm not going to tell you what events.
1: Well, my question about this retesting is, I'm pleased that they actually retested I remember when they stopped the testing for the 2004 samples because there was a very prominent distance runner that I still think is dirty and I wanted to get popped. And they conveniently said they weren't going to retest the samples. I wonder if they did it on purpose. So I give them credit for retesting these things. But, John, how do they figure out what 80% to test? Like, do they get to pick the 20%? Like, did they test the men's 10,000 medalists again?
0: I have no idea how this works. I would retest everyone. If you still got samples to retest and you've got technology that didn't exist back then, do as many as you can. Test the top 10 in every event.
1: Now, John, before we go... Last week's podcast, you we seem to be giving a lot of praise for saving Brown track and field to people like Russell Dinkins and raising awareness. And I said, you know what? I think it might have been probably internal stuff. Now, the New York Times has come out with a piece called Inside the Sophisticated Campaign to Save Men's Running at Brown. It didn't really – I guess it did mention Russell Dinkins, but it seemed like it was more of an inside job. What do you think?
0: Well, it's th- – the administrators are what the ones who made the decision to reinstate the program, but why did they do it? Because they got heavy pressure from alums, and they also pointed out the problems with taking away opportunities for minority student-athletes, and that was one of the things Russell Dinkins wrote. You really don't think that this public pressure about this them being decried for denying opportunities to minority student-athletes didn't weigh on them, that that PR... Pressure was, was one of the reasons that they changed their minds?
1: Oh, I do, but I, I think, like, I don't know, when I was reading that piece, they actually had a video that the Brown athletes made. It was amazing. with it. But, like, all the black guys in the Brown track team were like, why do you not care about me? It was very effective. It was kind of like that NFL video with with Roger Goodell.
0: Yeah. No, what, their point was essentially, like, not every effort to save a program like this is going to be as well-organized and, you know, is as quick to react as the brown one was but they they got on it right away and they they had a very solid organized uh, effective effort
2: but Robert are you disappointed there was no mention of let's run.com I think in last week's podcast you were taking claim for the tweet that we put out showing the lack of diversity in the sailing team and a very ethnically diverse track team
1: oh I, I wasn't trying to I said I, I was trying to downplay our role I I did I did play Help ignite the, the racial angle here. I thought that was a good one to play. Because the ironic thing, and that's why the video by the, the Brown students made was so effective, was I thought it was so ridiculous that, you know, they're cutting all these teams, they're, they're ruining a lot of college kids' dreams, and Sort of for cover, they tried to say, and we're increasing the diversity of the teams because they were cutting a lot of all white teams, but they also cut the track team. But that was going to give them like the get out of jail card. Oh, because we're cutting all the white teams, we can cut all these track t- all these teams. But then they, by mistake, they cut like a team that has a decent number of minorities on it, so they couldn't cut it. It was just hilarious that they sort of got caught in their own political correctness. It came back to bite them, and I'm glad that it did. But folks, if you haven't had enough, Ivy League like Talk. We've got plenty more coming up.
0: Yeah, Robert, one more thing before you tease the Nia Aikens interview.
1: Oh, you tease it, because you're doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'll, we'll do it in a minute. No, I'll tease it in a minute. But first, there was one other thing. Drew Hunter, a couple weeks ago, drove out to South Dakota for some reason. It just pros are getting bored. They want to race. They want to do things. So him and a bunch of the Tin men Elite guys just drove out to South Dakota and decided to try to run a mile time trial there. And Drew Hunter went out, he ran 357, he became the first person to run a sub-four mile in the state of South Dakota, and there's a Let's Run thread on this about which states have yet to see a sub-four-minute mile. By my count, there are nine, and they are Mississippi, New Hampshire, Vermont, Delaware, West Virginia, Colorado, Wyoming, Nevada, and Hawaii. Now, Hawaii has seen sub-four road miles, but I don't think an official one on the track I'm looking at these, and I look, I think America is a distance-running nation. The mile is an American distance at this point, and you know there's nothing more American than a road trip. I think that people need to go out there. Some of these milers, they have nothing to do. You need to go out there and start knocking some of these states out. I think Ole Miss, I'm sure there's someone in the Ole Miss team who can run a sub-four mile. New Hampshire, Eric Jenkins, home state, go out there and do it. Delaware, Sam Parsons Parsons is from Delaware. He should go back home, get his sub-four mile there. Josh Thompson, the reigning U.S. Indoor Champion. He's from Nevada. He needs to go to Nevada, run a sub-four mile. I think we can get most of these. The two that I think are challenges, Colorado and Wyoming, because they're mountain states, they're at altitude. Now, we know Joe Bosshard's training group, which now includes Morgan McDonald and uh, Nick Harris, who ran really well at USA Indoors this year. They're going for the Colorado state record, which is 401. So I'm guessing they're going for sub four next weekend. And I, the one I really think is tough is Wyoming. Because first of all, you've got to go to Wyoming. I mean, how many pro runners in this country have even been to the state of Wyoming? And second of all, the, like pretty much the whole state's at altitude. I think their lowest track might be, they might have one or two tracks below 5,000 feet or something. I don't know if I'm making that up. But what do you guys make of this?
2: I'm just still shocked Colorado doesn't have one. The altitude conversion is, what, like five seconds? Six seconds?
0: Yeah, but you're relying on college kids. No pros are going out and running a mile in Colorado. You're relying on, like, college kids at a home meet.
2: They now have an indoor track in Colorado. I just think in one of the end college meets, you can almost get it. I guess that's a sub-355. But there's so many runners in Colorado. you think it would have happened once, but I guess...
1: Nobody's well, if you're in good shape, it's like the Ritzenheim thing. If you're in great shape, why would you want to waste it and running a mile altitude to go to sea level bunch,
0: Well, you got this. This is the weekend next weekend. Joe Bossard's group. I mean, Morgan McDonald, he's run 355. I think if he's fit, he's got a shot to do it.
2: What if they cheat, John, and go down, go down like to the eastern part of the state? Where That's the, not uh...
0: cheating. As long as you're within the state of Colorado, it's fine. And folks, if you're going to do this, just shoot
1: an email to let's run at let's so we can promote it. These are cool things, but if nobody knows about it, I know you think that everyone's on Twitter and Instagram, but it's a tiny percentage of the population that's on Twitter and Instagram.
0: Yeah, ninety-five percent of the population is on Let's Run dot com. That's the way to hear about ninety-five percent <laughs> of the die-hard track fans, probably. All right, that, that's that's fair. That's fair. All right, anything else? Or should I tease our interview with Nia? Deleted
2: real quick. Deleted thread of the week. Rate your wife one to ten, Robert, on physical attractiveness. Go. Oh, just kidding.
0: Yeah, not touching that with a 10 foot pole.
2: Some, sometimes the deleted thread of the week is the thread that we won't restore. Sometimes it's the thread we should restore. This was one that was properly deleted.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah. Interview with Nia Aikens coming up. She is a two time NCAA runner up. She's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, and she is joining the Brooks Beasts uh, in Seattle, the first collegiate from 2020 to sign a pro deal. So, very much looking forward to that. All right. And we're now happy to be joined by Nia Akins. She is a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. She's a two-time NCAA runner-up in the 800 meters. And she is, to my knowledge, the first collegian who's graduated this year, who's actually signed a professional contract. She will be joining the Brooks Beast. Nia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you.
0: Yeah. What is, I guess... Let's start with like it's a crazy time, yeah. you know, between the protests that have been happening, between someone graduating. I couldn't imagine graduating right now. Um, and obviously, COVID derailing your senior year when you were the, the NCAA favorite in the 800 meters. What has the last three months been like for you?
3: Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster of emotions. I think graduating was still very exciting, um, and I think it it's been tough kind of navigating. Those emotions mixed with kind of like oh what could have been and and not really knowing if there will ever be a space again where I can see all of my friends in one place. But I think the the excitement was still there, and I think I was I was looking forward to obviously the outdoor season and NCAA's and everything. But um, I've really valued the experiences that I have had in quarantine. Um, just you know training, going back to the basics, and kind of rediscovering why I like the sport to begin with. Um, keeping it simple. Um, has been really reassuring and really validating for me and why I love the sport and and why I love to do this. And I think it's definitely helped me make a decision that I want to go pro and I want to, you know, continue to pursue running as a career. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. You mentioned not maybe not being able to see your friends again. I mean, that, that to me is kind of nuts. Like senior spring is supposed to be that time. It's your last hurrah and you know, you know, you're probably not all going to be together again. And to have that taken away, I mean, that must have just been devastating to realize, hey, we, we might not be able to gather every day like we usually do anymore. Yeah,
3: it definitely was. And I think my heart goes out to any seniors that are listening right now because I get it. It's definitely been tough. Um, I think knowing that I was a part of a lot of different groups, like outside of track, my nursing friends, too, um, just kind of thinking all of us won't probably exist in the same space again unless we all come back for graduation. Penn's decided to have another commencement next year after the class of 2021 graduates. Um, so I think that's been a little disheartening, but I know, you know, the, the friends that I do have, we're going to keep in touch. We're going to continue to talk, um, even if we don't see each other physically. So that's been really reassuring and nice.
0: So lots of topics to cover in this podcast. I guess I want to start further back to high school because my boss, Robert Johnson, he's always obsessed with like people's progressions and how do they get to be where they are. And he's like, sending me all your high school time. He's like, Oh, she ran 208 as a junior, but then she only ran 210 as a senior in high school. Like, and to me like, I don't know, 208, 210, they're both pretty good to me, but like, did you he was sort of wondering like why why did you slide back? Did you view that as a problem at all that senior year?
3: Yeah, I would say I definitely had the dream junior year in high school. I came from a pretty great program. Entrepreneur high school is pretty fantastic. We have great coaches there. Um my my coach is still there, Terry Dockery. But um, I definitely had a classic case of senioritis my senior year, not going to lie. <laughs> um, definitely did really well academically, but definitely kind of fell off um, athletically a little bit. Um, but I kind of knew, you know, coming to Penn, I was really excited about the opportunity of, you know, having more resources and being a part of like a new team and, and in a really high achieving environment. I knew I'd be able to, to get back into it.
0: OK, so that was high school. And now college, you know, I look at your progression. It seems fairly typical to me. I mean, you make NCAAs in 2018 outdoors. Then 2019, you're runner-up indoors. And th- I guess that's the year you made that jump to national, real national class. And then this year, you're among the best of the country. You run two flat two flat seven one, I think, indoors, which is the second fastest time ever for an NCAA runner indoors. But again, Robert's like, he's sending me these stats, and he's like, oh, look at, like, Indoor Hepp, she was lost as a, as a sophomore and into a HEPs, I was like, yeah, that's true. did you fall? Were you injured? Like, What happened to go from that to going to qualifying for NCAAs that year?
3: Yeah, so my sophomore year, I had a concussion um, in the early spring. So HEPs was actually one of my first races back, and I did really well at prelims, and I remember everyone was kind of shocked that I made the final. And I think I just, I just got a little starstruck and frazzled in the final and, and, you know, just the typical, like, this is be too much, um, which looking back on, you know, it happens to everyone. Like you're never going to have a perfect race and somebody has got to come in last every single race. I can tell you throughout my career, I have come in last maybe just as many times as I've won things. Um, but it's definitely been, um, a huge opportunity for me to refocus, um, and grow from all of those experiences, quite frankly. Um, and yeah, I mean, the following year, junior year, I came back and I was able to, to win my event at Heps um, and kind of keep that going. And after coming in last, I just knew I was like, this isn't happening again. This isn't happening again here. Like, I know I'm better than this. And I think that year the team also won the title as well. Um, so I think, you know, coming off of that success too, I was like, the team's doing well. I'm in this great environment, you know, we're, 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 we can only go up from here. That's for sure.
0: And then moving into 2019, that's really your breakout season. And, you know, you almost win the NCAA title indoors. You're just pipped by, uh, Denae Rivers right there at the line. But what, what led to that leap? Do you feel like you made a leap that year and what contributed to it?
3: I do. Um, I think that trip was really positive. Um, I think being the only person from my school to go, was really powerful for me. I felt like, you know, this was an opportunity for me to to really focus on what I could do and kind of do something special for the team and for the program. And at the same time, um, that 800 was really cool because the top performers were all from the East Coast. There were people that I towed the line with like all the time that season from um, Danae to Allie um, to even Rachel. Like those are people that I was very familiar with. So it didn't feel as big of a meet as it actually was. It just kind of felt like, you know, another, it's just like another meet at home, honestly, because there was such a strong representation from the East Coast. So I think um, on the line, I, I was just thinking, you know, this can't go wrong as long well, as I'm sticking with them and, and being true to to my training because um, I hadn't really had an opportunity uh, to race like that yet um, at that caliber. So it was really fun um, and it, it worked out
0: extremely well. I'm
3: very happy with the
0: results. <laughs> yeah, my memory of that race is, you were just blowing by people on the inside. And I, also, I was like shocked how you were able to do that on the last lap. There's like no space to run an 800 meters indoors and you somehow found it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. was, um, I want to say that it was very, um, tactful, but I think, you know, I was just trying to stay as close with the leaders as possible. And, and when that opened up, you know, I just, I just went for it.
0: Uh, training wise, were you doing anything different that, you know, led to that improvement?
3: No, I think, um, naturally over, um, the course of my college career, as I started to improve, the training started to pick up a little bit. I don't think there was anything drastic that changed. Um, I think my mentality changed each time I grew more confident and I think that's more important than anything. It's just me being confident in myself and believing in myself. And I think that's what translated to great performances later on.
0: So I want to fast forward this year. Um, you run two flat indoors. You're the NCAA favorite uh, going into nationals, and then suddenly, that's it. The day before the meet, it's all canceled. Indoors, outdoor season. How did you process that? Was it were you crying? Were you uh, probably weren't laughing, but like emotionally, how did you deal with that cancellation?
3: Yeah, I think honestly, the Ivy League had already lost the outdoor season at that point, um, so I think a lot of my emotions were kind of spent on that. And just the idea of, you know, me probably not seeing my team again and knowing the classes were online. Um, so when the indoor meet was canceled, um, uh, my coaches and one of my teammates, my and I had just landed in Albuquerque when we heard the news. Um, so we had to fly right back. <laughs> um, and for me, um, cause I'm a nursing student at the time, Penn nursing wanted all of their nurses to report back to campus. Um, so I came back to Penn and I was kind of just very focused on preparing in the case that I would need to be back in the hospital environment and help fight the pandemic, um, which the decision was not to do that for students because Penn Medicine did an excellent job at, at mitigating the situation. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there was many times there wasn't a lot of time to to be super emotional in the in the immediate period. And all the people around me did a fantastic job of making light of the situation um my coach was absolutely hilarious at that time um and so was my trainer so it was great that we could still crack jokes and go out to eat and go on runs and stuff while we were in Albuquerque and still make still make it a good
0: experience so yeah so hilarious i need the details what was so funny
3: <laughs> um well when i first got in the van, van and we were heading to the airport my coach turned around and he said well Looks like we have the outdoor track budget, so we can get manis and petties while we're there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we can go to go to a fondue restaurant. Um, very clearly upset, but definitely making light of the situation and just having fun with it. So um, it was great to be around people like that, that, you know, could still be emotionally positive um, in some facet as we were dealing with craziness. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you guys end up getting Manny petties?
3: We did not. We did not. But we did end up going um, to a nice Mexican restaurant. Um, it wasn't exactly fondue, but it was great quality time with the people that were there. So,
0: do you, are you like, are you at peace with not being able to win an NCAA title? Because I feel like when you get that close, that's really. That, I mean, everyone, the top collegians, all they, all of them wanted to win an NCAA title, and you had those opportunities taken from you this year. How do you feel about that?
3: Yeah, I would be remiss to say that I wasn't upset angry for a while. Um, I think especially since last year, I just remember at the end of NCAAs thinking like, I'm so excited for next year. Like next year, there's so much I can work on starting fresh from the beginning. Cause I think I really knew what I was capable of in the middle of the year. And I was training with that mentality for only half of it. So I think coming into this year with that mentality, I just knew it was going to be better. Um, so I think I definitely. Was for a very long time very upset, especially since my school hasn't had an NCAA champion um, female yet. Um, So I was kind of hoping that, you know, I could open that door for people. And I really think, you know, the way the team's looking, there's an opportunity for that to happen soon anyway. So I'm not too upset about that. Um, But I also think, you know, I knew that there was more on the table. Like I knew that I was in better shape than I was when I ran the two flat in Boston. And I think that has been very helpful in training during this period of not really knowing what I'm training towards. Cause I know like there was more in the table and I, and I want to be protective of that and I want to train to have a really great season whenever it comes. So that's been
0: helpful. My boss, Robert Johnson, he was emailing with uh, your coach, Steve Dolan. And one of the things Steve said was that Tuesdays you were basically just training on your own because you had your nursing major and they, those were clinical days for you at Penn. I'm curious, like, because basically you're working a full day clinical rotations, I think. What was was that like? What were your Tuesdays like and how did it affect your training? How did you balance all this stuff?
3: Yeah, it was something um, that I definitely had to get used to really early. My sophomore year was the year that I started clinical rotations and they were eight hours long on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then junior year, they became 12 hours long on just Tuesday. Um, And senior year, it was 12 hours, both Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, so essentially I would go wake up really early, go into the hospital in the morning, um, be there from six to six or seven to seven. Um, and then after that, I would come over to the track um, and then train there. Luckily, the hospital is three minute walk from the track, so it's not too crazy. Um, but it definitely is weird to get there with the lights all off <laughs> um, and, and do a workout there and do it by myself. But um, I think it's definitely helped me have more confidence in myself. And when I do toe the line, I think, wow, I've done a lot to get here. So, you know, it's time to make it worth it. I know I can do this. So it's
0: been definitely been helpful. Yeah. I mean, 12 hour days twice a week. That just sounds insane. Like, were you just exhausted by the time you were working out?
3: Um, I think running and nursing are two things that are more compatible than people would expect them to be. There are. A lot of nurses that are actually running at a very high level, like even in pen medicine, there's a few, um, because when I get to the track, it's kind of a nice release of whatever's happened during the hospital day. Um, Because to be honest, it can be very exhausting. It can be very emotionally exhausting, but running kind of recharges me. So doing a workout, honestly, isn't the worst thing to do after that. Um, I think it's one of the more healthier things I can do than just vegging out (laughs) during a long clinical day. So it works out pretty well. Are you on your feet all day for something like that, though? Yeah, it depends on the clinical rotation. Um, My senior year was a bit tougher. I was on my feet a lot more than junior year. But, you know, I kind of took it as senior year was going to be harder anyway, um, athletically, too. So I kind of rose to the occasion of that challenge. And and I kind of expected, you know, my reaction to that to kind of translate to, you know, the rise and the rise in competition and track as, as well and those expectations. So everything kind of came along naturally together it got harder progressively academically and athletically so it helped uh
0: and nursing certainly you know it's it's something you sound like you want to continue with it uh moving forward but you know you're also professional runner you've got an olympic year coming up next year like during your competitive career how do you feel like you're going to balance them are you still going to try to do nursing or are you going to hold off on that until you're done running competitively
3: yeah so i'm Obviously, moving across the country to an entirely new city in the midst of a global pandemic and a civil rights movement. So I think first things first. I just need to get adjusted to the environment, learn about the environment that I'm getting myself into, um, and I know that's going to take time. Um, and I'm still studying for my boards now, and take I'm probably going to take the NCLEX sometime in the fall. Um, so that's my biggest focus: is making sure that I can get my nursing licensure and that I'm familiar with the area that I'm in before I settle down more and start to pursue a nursing opportunity there, which would probably look like something part-time, something that would work really well with track.
0: Um, and you mentioned, you know, you're moving cross country to Seattle. Uh, I can't imagine like a, a stranger time to be turning professional right now, given Definitely. the pandemic. Like how did, how did that come about? Like, did you ever consider maybe taking a fifth year at some non Ivy? Cause you know, you can't use it at the Ivy league level, but did you ever consider that or, you know, you were very committed to graduating, just turning pro. Like how did that whole process play out for you?
3: Yeah. Um, to be honest, in the initial period, I was considering working as a nurse immediately after and staying in Philadelphia and doing that for a while and figuring out running stuff later um, and still continuing to train. Um, but I definitely wanted to focus on nursing first uh, more so than go back to school, especially now. Cause I felt like, it was needed um, just because, you know, nurses everywhere were were struggling and just really busy and overwhelmed by the pandemic. Um, and then as time went on and, and things started to get a little bit better, I didn't want to let go of nursing entirely, but, you know, there were opportunities on the table and I've been talking to Brooks for a very long time and I'd always really liked the idea of going to Seattle and being a part of that group and that team. Um, so it kind of all fell into place and I knew... They would allow me the flexibility to pursue a nursing career on the side as well, um, Mm -hmm. not lose those clinical skills. So that's definitely a huge reason why I chose Brooks.
0: Were you you worried at all that you might not be able to sign a contract this year or for several months? Because right now you're the only one. I mean, we've seen like Alicia Monson, Joe Klecker, a lot of these, there's several athletes who have said they've turned pro, Danny Jones as well. But you're the only one who's actually inked like a, a shoe deal at this point. Were you concerned about that at all?
3: Honestly, I was not. Um, I had been, Ray has been absolutely fantastic. Ray Flynn, and I've been talking with him pretty early on. Um, my coach, Coach Dolan, did a really good job of in the fall kind of setting me up with those conversations and trying to navigate finding an agent very early so I wasn't overwhelmed in the springtime and I could focus on racing. Um, so I'm very glad that that fell together as, as early as it did because then that allowed those conversations to happen and Ray was really reassuring. Um, and you know, he was right. Like a comp, like a contract would come whether it was now, whether it was in six months, whether it was in a year. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of, you know, what do I need to do in the immediate moment? Which for me, that was focused on graduating and focused on getting a degree. So, um, I was, I don't think I was ever worried. I had really good people in my circle that helped
0: uh, me get to where I needed to be. One thing, uh I I think I'm curious about the, one of the best 800 meter running groups in the world right now is in Philadelphia with Roger Wilson and Raven Rogers. Was that like, why leave there? Why go you know somewhere else to join a different team? Do you ever consider joining that group and, you know, trying to sign with a different sponsor or something like that?
3: That's very true. Yes, I I did consider that, but I think um, it's a very natural thing to do, you know, after you graduate a place to kind of, leave and go somewhere else and try something different. Um and I think I have a lot of people in my circle that are also very older than me and and very wise and they said, you know, you're young, there's ever an opportunity to explore, have new adventures and new experiences, now would be the time. Um and I really like Brooks a lot. I I really like coach Danny and I really like the people there. Um and the environment. And I I thought, you know, now's the time for for that change to leave Philly and and you know, have fun there. I'm I'm really excited.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Seattle, I'm sure will be awesome. Um, What I'm curious though, like, you know, just from a hypothetical perspective, humor me here, like, would you want to train in a group where, you know, your training partners are also two of the women you would need to be beating or competing with at the United States and and international levels with, with, is that something that appeals to you? Would you rather not be training like with some of your direct rivals?
3: Um, to be honest, that's obviously something that you know I needed to think about. No matter what group I was a part of, is who I would be training with and whether I'd be towing the line with them. To me, I don't think it really it really makes a difference. I think there's a mentorship aspect to it, and those girls there. If you're ta- if you're talking specifically about the Philadelphia group, they're a family, um, and they look after each other and they take care of each other. So I don't think you know. I think a lot of people are very concerned about the competitive aspect of that, but I think. You know, I don't know all of the groups personally, but I mean, I know the ones that I've spoken to, um, they they look after each other and that's just a huge aspect of the running community in general. We're very supportive of one another. So I don't think that was a fear that ever steered me away.
0: <laughs> uh, you mentioned, you know, ex- going out to Seattle and getting in a new environment is something that appealed to you. Looking at the group specifically, was there anything that kind of sold you on the beast on having Danny Mackey as your coach?
3: Um, coach Mackey is a great 800 meter coach. Um, for sure. Um, the team is absolutely fantastic. There's so many different personalities and they all work extremely well together and there's plenty of space for them to be themselves within, within the company. And the fact that everything is right there is really nice too. Um, I think a huge part of the reason why I was so successful at Penn was because of the people. Um, I don't think I was ever super reliant on the environment. It was more so the people in it. Um, And I know I'll still talk to those people. I know I'll still connect with those people. So I think, you know, moving to Seattle because of that, knowing that I'm going from one group of really great people to another group of really great people, um, I really like that idea. And I really like the family aspect of Brooks um, that I'm sure you're familiar with. Everybody kind of can sense that, even if you're not a part of the group. Um, So I'm really excited about that, um, to join that group and be a part of that family. And and yeah, so.
0: So moving on a little bit to other things going on in the country right now obviously there's been a lot of protests this is a, a big time of activism uh, around the black lives matter movement and you, you wrote a post for runner's world which you know everyone should check out if they haven't seen it yet about on the night of your graduation you were you were you know training in penn park and you had a man approach you yelling racial slurs i was curious like has anything was that the first time something like that had happened to you before or was this a, a repetitive incident
3: um i've definitely experienced stuff like that before, but I don't think ever by myself, if that makes sense. I think I've always usually been around people or there was somebody that I knew that was close to me. Um so that was kind of the first time I as my own individual had to figure out what I needed to do and how I was going to handle and de-escalate the situation. Um so I think that aspect of it was very new to me. Um but dealing with racial slurs, racism, that's just that's a lifelong struggle. But um, Yeah, that's that was definitely different. Um, But I'm very fortunate that I was at Penn Park um, with Penn Park security. um, Honestly, Um, I do trust their security and I did feel comfortable approaching them um, or more so than I would just if I were on the streets of Philadelphia or anywhere, honestly. So um, I would be remiss to say that I was not fortunate in that situation to be where I was.
0: And I think one of the things that has emerged in this movement, specifically after the killing of Ahmad Arbery, was I saw a lot of, you know, posts or messages from black runners saying, you know, they worry when they go out running, you know, they, you know, they worry for their safety, they worry someone might be judging them, that sort of thing. Like, when you, as a young black runner yourself, like, do you ever fear or do you have those thoughts when you're out running?
3: I do. And I think those thoughts are heightened now because I have been running by myself a lot more during quarantine. Um, especially with everything that's going on and especially after the Penn Park situation. But I mean, after a mod it was much more fresh. I think those fears are always there. Um, but again, I am in I am in a community of people that, you know, there are a lot of people out running. I do feel safer running in the environment that I am than in others, but the fact that, you know, some people don't even leave their houses, forget running, but like just walking out of their houses because they're scared of something like that happening to them is a serious problem. And I think that's a huge reason why, you know, it is important that a lot of runners right now voice that they're afraid to run. Cause I think that's more tangible for, for runners everywhere is understanding, you know, man, like when you run, you're supposed to feel so free and it's supposed to be so uplifting and endorphins and everything. But it's not like that for everyone. Um, and you know, when you take running out of it and you look at the global picture and you just think, man, to just go outside and walk, um, in my community, it's, it's not safe. Like that's a serious problem that this country, this country really should unpack and and digest. So.
0: What are the thoughts that you have when you're on a run that you don't think, you know, a white person might have to think about or deal with?
3: Yeah. I think, um, you know, when I'm running by a police officer Um, I think, you know, there's a little ping in my chest that I just grew up with. I was raised on. um, And I just think that that's something that other people just, you know, people that happen to be white just might not feel um, or might not experience. Um, And I think there are other, you know, other things too that, you know, when I'm looked at a certain way, um, I kind of fear like, you know, are they looking at me like that because they don't don't like the color of my skin? Um, That's just kind of something that we experience all the time. Um, But yeah, I think, I don't know. I think everybody has different experiences and everybody interprets experiences differently, which is why it's important that, you know, we are having these conversations right now and we're all exchanging our perspectives. So,
0: Um, Regarding this larger movement and the protests that are going on, are there any sort of, are there any specific changes that you would like to see in this country? And, you know, have you taken any steps towards achieving them or have you spoken about anything, you know, in that regard?
3: Yeah, um, I've been a huge advocate for, for getting younger people to vote. I think it's really impressive that the amount of petitions um, for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmad, like all of those petitions have been signed by a lot of people and honestly, a lot of young people. And I think if you look, there were, there was a study or I was looking at something that the number of people that were signing those petitions like, is much more than the amount of people that are actually getting out to vote. Um, and you know, that voting, honestly, that's the biggest thing that people can do right now is, is being aware of who they're voting for and voting for the people that could actually initiate the change that they want to see. Um, so I, I've, I've been trying to be a huge advocate of that and signing for tensions and working locally, um with pin athletics and, and, you know, my fellow pin athletes and trying to figure out ways that we can initiate change just within our, our own immediate community. Cause that's extremely important too to have those conversations in those spaces that you're in every day.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's, that's awesome. Looking ahead to the future. When are you, when are you moving out to Seattle? Very soon, <laughs> very
3: soon. I am currently packing, um, maybe sometime this weekend I'll, I'll I'll be flying out. So I'm really excited for this change, but it's happening very quickly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Flying, no, no road trip. I always felt like if I was going to move, if I was going to move out to the West coast, I'd try to do like some big American road trip, but you just want to get there quickly.
3: I considered a road trip and I brought it up to, um, coach Steve Dolan, who's my pen coach here and, um, coach Mackey. And I think the both of them in the back of their minds were like, sure. But, how are you going to train? So, um, it was kind of in the back of both their minds. I was like, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe in the future. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll put that in, on the, on the back burner for now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So are you still training? Like, do you, are you going to try to race if there is a domestic season in the U S?
3: Yeah, I think racing, honestly, I have been training and I've been training, pretty conservatively since I've been in Philadelphia, just because of the lack of resources, I'm just kind of not having a training room or a trainer just being safe and, and staying healthy, which I'm very proud of, especially now that I'm transitioning that, you know, I'm transitioning in one piece and I'm healthier than ever. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but I am in a position to ramp up training for race if the world is in good shape. Um, and if there are viable racing opportunities, um, but yeah, I think it really does depend on what's going on globally. Cause if it doesn't make sense to race, then it's just, you know, no matter what shape I'm in, it's it's just not the time. So
0: Yeah. And how do you feel? I mean, if you look at the US in the eight hundred right now, the women's eight hundred, that's one of the strongest events we have. We've got Wilson was the bronze medalist at Wells last year, Raven Rogers had the silver, and then you've got Hannah Greens from 158, and Sierra Brown made the World Championship final. So And that was when the U.S. got four people because Wilson was the Diamond League champ. Next year, only three people are going to be able to make the team. How do you feel about your Olympic chances?
3: I mean, it wouldn't be a fun journey if there weren't people to compete with, honestly. Um, You know, I'm honestly very optimistic about about being in a position to compete for a spot at the Olympics, but... I definitely know it's going to be an extreme challenge, but I wouldn't be where I am right now without watching those girls do what they're doing. Cause I think knowing, you know, they're Americans and they're doing all these great things and, you know, they Raven Rogers in college, you know, watching her progress and build up and still continue to be great afterwards. Those are things that I've looked up to and those are things that have kept me going. So I'm beyond excited to hopefully toe the line with those girls. Um, at the Olympic trials next year and, and compete for a spot. I think it'll be fun.
0: Yeah. well, if, if it's anything like the 800 lost Olympic trials, it's going to be wild. That one was one of the craziest races, uh, of 2016.
3: Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully it's a safe race, you know? Um, and you know, we're all crossing the line. Um, that's, that's all anybody could hope for at, at the Olympic trials. So.
0: Yeah. You want to see it. People stay on their feet. Good race. You know, just, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that's something we can all look forward to uh, next year and near. Really appreciate uh, the time here on the Let's Run podcast. Always good to see a Hepsalom taking the next step to the next yeah. level. So wish you uh, best of luck in your f- future career.
3: Thank you. Great talking to you. One Ivy forever, always. <laughs> that's
0: right.